at evening service here at Charlotte Chapel. It's been a beautiful sunny day. Uh, we thank God for that. Why are we not still stuck at the park? Why aren't we uh, at the meadows with a case of beer chilling out? Why are we here gathered as God's people in this church building? Well, it's because the truth of John 1.14 is real in the lives of many of us here. And it says this, the word, that's the eternal logos, the eternal God, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And for many of us here, we have not physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ, but through eyes of faith, we have seen his glory. And we have been led into tr the truth of who he is. And it's had three effects on us. Number one, the God of the universe has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Number two, we've been brought into a relationship with the God of the universe. And number three, we've been rescued from our sin and into a relationship with the creator of the universe. And that's why we gather this evening. And we're going to sing, You Alone Can Rescue. So please do stand as the musicians lead us.
For us who trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came born of a virgin, the one who came and led a spotless and sinless life to then die on a cross in the place of sinners. For us who believe in him, in his resurrection, in his ascension, we can say today that it is well with our soul because you have dealt with our sin as we just sang, not in part, Not a small bit of it, and we have to work to deal with the rest. But you have dealt with our sin in its entirety. There is no depth of sin. There is no darkness in our souls that you have not dealt with through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we give you praise and glory, and we say hallelujah. We love you. We praise you, and we thank you for your kindness, your undeserved mercy to sinners like us. Us, an entire life's worth of service and praise could never repay all that you've done. And yet today we want to uh, live our lives 
every moment for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and so that your name will be hallowed. Father, we ask that this, our worship service, would bring honor and glory to you, that we, your people, uh, as we sing your praises, would be built up, would be strengthened, as we hear the preaching of your word, that we would be uh, renewed in our inner selves, that, Lord, the weight of glory that you have begun in us would increase, Lord, that our obedience to your word would increase, that the power of sin in our lives would be seen for what it is, defeated by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would walk in obedience to you. Lord, uh, would our worship service be pleasing to you? Would our lives be a fragrant offering to you? And Lord, may you receive all the praise and all the glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let me welcome you again if you've um, just arrived. Um, my name's Ashley and I serve here as one of the pastors in training. It's a, it's a real joy to welcome you. Um, welcome to those uh, signing in and tuning in on the live stream service. A real special welcome to you if you're visiting us or perhaps you've um, um, come to visit this church for one of the first times. A real warm welcome to you and there'll be an opportunity to find out a little bit more later about us as a church if you want to get a bit more involved. Um, just a, a few quick notices for us. Um, on the evening service on Easter Sunday, we won't be gathering here at Charlotte Chapel. We will be going to the Usher Hall uh, and one of our speakers, well, the guest speaker, Michael Otts, will be doing an evangelistic talk there. This is just an advance notice that you will need to book onto that. So you will need to register your interest uh, and information will be coming out in the MailChimp to do so. But this is just an advance warning about that. Um, uh, in the theme of Passion for Life as well, um, we have an up-and-coming uh, Dalmahoy Golf Club Evangelism Breakfast. Um, this is a great opportunity for you to invite a friend along um, to come to the Dalmahoy Golf Club uh, and Michael Ox will be doing an evangelistic breakfast at 9am. Uh, and so you pay a particular amount of money and your friend gets to eat breakfast for free and they get to hear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so if you're a member here and a Christian, this is not for you to rock up to on your own. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to bring a friend so that they can hear something about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Saturday the 16th of April, and there'll be more information in our weekly email. And our last notice uh, is going to be brought to us um, on the video by one of our elders, uh, Graham Penman. So that should be coming up now. Sure. My name's Graham, I'm one of the elders here at the chapel and I'd like to spend a couple of minutes just letting you know a little bit about a conference that we're hosting with Music Ministry next month called Enjoying God in Song. Now each week as we gather together on a Sunday we are richly blessed by so many who have been given gifts in music whether that's playing instruments or leading us in singing. And I want to take this opportunity just, just now to thank them for their hard work and dedication uh, that they put in uh, to doing this week by week. Because there's a lot that goes on in the background. Things like selecting appropriate songs for the service and the themes and the position within the service. Working with the pastoral team and the service leaders to work on items that are going to be into the service. Reviewing theology of new songs that are suggested that come in to make sure that they're theologically correct and appropriate for the church to be singing uh, together. Mentoring younger musicians and other musicians to send them out into church plants to help 
them lead their song praise and worship Sunday by Sunday. And ultimately, looking at how do we encourage one another and brothers and sisters in Christ as we meet to lift our voices in praise uh, to God together through song. And this is the reason why we wanted to set aside a day uh, next month, and it's going to be April the 30th, to delve deep into God's Word with some teaching sessions from Dr. Ian Hamilton, our very own Paul Rees, uh, Andy Fenton and others from Music Ministry who are going to give teaching on lots of these topics. Well, who should come to this conference? Well, I think this conference is for everyone. In the morning, there will be two main teaching sessions, along with copious amounts of sung worship led by the band. Uh, in the afternoon, we'll have interactive seminar sessions on everything from choosing, rehearsing and leading songs uh, to enjoying older songs, the, the richness of biblical songs and hymns from the past. It'll be a great day of equipping and encouraging musicians, singers, service leaders, pastors, church members, CU leaders from churches across Scotland with the theology of song worship as we look to ensure that we sing songs that focus on God, are full of biblical truth, point sinners to the gospel and lift glory and praise to him. Tickets are available online to book now at music-ministry.org and look for the Edinburgh Conference, hit the book now button. Uh, they're £12, but please don't let that be an issue. Just come and see me and we can sort you out. And we are looking forward to seeing you all there at this conference. It promises to be a great day. So much that goes into uh, the music ministry here at uh, Charlotte Chapel. Please do book yourselves onto that if that's something that you'd be interested in. Um, right now we're going to be continuing our series um, in 1 Samuel. And we're going to be reading from the scriptures. Now one of our pastors, Andy, will be taking us through our next section in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So you'll find it helpful to have your Bibles open as we work our way through this. And one of our uh, members, Bethany Reese, is going to be coming to read to us from that portion of scripture, 1 Samuel Chapter 20 from verse 11. So that's 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting at verse 11. Come, Jonathan said, let's go out to the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favor favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But, my father intend but if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards the evening, 
go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go, find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are off, are on this, this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe, there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has offered me to be there and has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a, of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth and neither you nor your kingdom will be established, now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Thanks, Beth. We're looking forward to uh, Andy coming to preach and teach us from that passage. Uh, let's just pray together. Father in heaven, um, there are so many reasons for us, your people, to thank you and to praise you uh, and to bring great worship before you. You are holy and you're perfectly good. There is no uh, stain or wrong thing within you. Uh, Lord, such a concept is hard for sinners like us to even grasp. And so we ask that you might reveal to us something of your perfection and your holiness more and more. That we might be in awe of you. That we might worship you rightly. Father, we thank you that you've made a way for sinners to be rescued and for that we cannot give you enough praise and enough thanks now father we ask that you might help us to grow in dependence upon you and in obedience to your word thank you for your word thank you for the way that it reveals your plans and purposes for this world your character and how we might live as your people to please you we want to take this time today our lord to thank you for mothers we thank you for those who uh, love and give and offer sacrifice and serve in ways that honor you. Lord, we thank you for them. And our God, we, we pray for those for whom um, Mother's Day uh, is a particularly tough day, whether due to loss or the brokenness that sin causes in families. Lord, uh, would you draw near to them? 
Our Father, we want to pray for those within our church family and bring them before you once again, asking for your grace for another week, that you would sustain them, that you would provide for them. We think of our sister Sheila Howard and Natasha Black and Becky Ma Betty McIntyre and Sarah Forsyth. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen these sisters, whether at home, continuing treatment, or Lord, whether in hospital. We pray again for sustaining grace for Adrian and Val Todd. We thank you that Tony Norton has returned home. And Lord, we ask again that you would sustain our brother Ian Balfour. Father, we thank you and for this church family. We thank you for the way that you have sustained your people. And Lord, we want to bring them before you and ask that you would strengthen your people, uh, that you would be a friend to the lonely, that you would be strength to the weak. Lord, that you would be hope to those that are wavering and doubting. Lord, you're good and you're kind, more than we deserve. And so we thank you for that. Father, we want to bring before you the needs of this uh, wider world. We think of wars in Ukraine and Afghanistan and Yemen, as well as many other places in this world. Lord, where there is conflict, we pray for peace. We pray for, pray for diplomatic resolutions. We ask that your people that are in these war-torn countries that often suffer persecution and loss would know your sustaining grace and strength and that even uh, as the fabric of society looks to be disintegrating around them, Lord, that they would look to you as their sure and steady rock. Lord, we even pray for enemies of the gospel that they would come to know something of the mercy and the grace of you, our God, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. That like the apostle Paul who once persecuted the church, Lord himself became uh, one of the greatest evangelists. Lord, we pray uh, for those that persecute your church. And Lord, to that end, we uh, think of the cross-cultural workers that are, have gone out from here at Charlotte Chapel we want to thank you for Peter and Katie Wilson and thank you for the encouragements for the leadership team within AIM. And we want to thank you for the new staff that have come on board for the school. Uh, and yet, Lord, we want to go on asking again for grace for that ministry there. And Lord, ask for the new teachers that are needed um, for the faculty for the coming year. We want to pray too for the unreached people groups this week, the uh, South Gaziga people in Cameroon. Lord, we read of the advancement of Islam amongst those uh, northern tribes. And we ask, Lord, that that advance would wane. And actually, they would come into contact with you, the true God, and with the only Savior that you've sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would there be uh, men and women moved to be missionaries to this people group that uh, haven't heard anything of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Lord, would you have a great harvest amongst them? And so, Lord, as our minds uh, turn to this evening and to our gathering here, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for each and every one here. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would strengthen and sustain your servant Andy, that he would preach with clarity and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we, your people, uh, would have ears to hear and hearts ready to respond. Lord, would you meet with us, we pray. Would you um, plant your word deep within us that it would uh, bear great fruit in our lives. And Lord, would you receive all the glory, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
and just before Andy comes to preach uh, that passage that was read to us again, we're going to sing um, Grace So Marvelous. And this, this song helps us focus on God's grace, the depth of it, and how it should change and transform our thinking, our attitudes, and our desires. Let's stand as the musicians lead us.
please do be seated. Promises are cheap. Three times my broadband provider told me they'd provide fiber. Three times they failed. Amazon rarely delivers at the times they say. Hermes never. And roofers fail to come back with that promised quote. And you know what? We just accept it. That's normal, we say. That's the way the world is. So whenever we place an order or arrange to see someone or fix an appointment, we do so unsure that the promise will ever be kept. And tragically, that sort of thinking infects the wider world. We don't expect politicians to follow through on every manifesto promise. We think international treaties can be torn up at the whim of a, di a dictator. We begin to believe that most unsolicited phone calls are scams. So, so where do you go in times of trouble? Who do you trust? Maybe it will be a parent that's quite appropriate on a day such as this. You know how it works, sons and mums, dads and daughters. For blood ties are very strong, so you can find yourself escaping back to one parent or another, although even that can be tempered by disappointment or betrayal, as some have discovered to their great and deep distress. Or maybe it will be a spouse. After all, you made promises to each other, promises, till death us do part. But statistics today reveal that 42% of couples will break that promise. And maybe you've known something of that heart-wrenching pain or that crippling guilt. You can't go there. You can't find rest in that relationship. So, where do you go? Who do you trust? In David's case, according to 1 Samuel 20, he went to Jonathan, the son of the very man who'd been trying to kill him. For David had just escaped from a region called Ramah, as we saw last week, where Saul had gone to murder him, but Saul had himself been ambushed by God's spirit there. And David wanted to know why Saul kept making attempts on his life. He thought he'd served Saul well. He couldn't work out what his crime was, what had incited such a response. Now, this takes Jonathan by surprise. It seems that Jonathan is unaware of the events that we noticed last week in chapter 19. For we saw there how Jonathan thought that he'd managed to secure peace between his father and David. You remember those verses? Chapter 19, verses 6 to 7. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David 
will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. So little wonder, therefore, that Jonathan responds to David's news about the subsequent assassination attempts with incredulity. Verse 2, have chapter 20 open. Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David knows that Saul is a shrewd operator. And that being aware of Jonathan's deep friendship with David, he would now conceal his intentions from his son. So David comes up with a plan that will reveal to Jonathan whether his father still harbors a paranoid anger towards him. And then the rest of chapter 20 is broken up in three ways. It has a simple shape when you look at it. Verses 11 to 23, they're in the field. Verses 24 to 34, they're at the feast. Verses 35 to 42, they're back in the field. But, but actually, the main thrust of this chapter is not about fields or feasts or arrows and a boy collecting them, but really this chapter is about the nature of covenant commitment. It's about a love and a security that we can run to. For we come back to our original question, where did David go to find safety and peace? And as we've seen, it was back to his old covenant friend, Jonathan. You see, David was so certain that the covenant commitment that they'd made to each other back in chapter 18 would stand the pressures of that situation. Do you remember those verses? Fortnight ago, we looked at them. Chapter 18, verses 3 to 4. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And a fortnight ago, we saw the immense significance of the king's heir, Jonathan, giving to David all the trappings of his office. You see, Jonathan was recognizing that David was God's anointed king. Jonathan was giving up his own claims to kingship, and he was acknowledging David's rightful place. And it's this covenant commitment that David is referring to here in chapter 20, verse 8, as he addresses Jonathan. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. So let's identify three things about this covenant, and we'll see how they have direct relevance to our lives today. First thing I want us to notice is the intense compassion of the covenant, the intense compassion of the covenant. See, the Old Testament uses a special Hebrew word to describe love. It's the word hesed, and it occurs almost 250 times 
in the Bible. The problem is we don't have an equivalent English word. It doesn't easily translate over. You see, this word has the sense of loyal or faithful love, a committed love, a devoted love. And there in verse 8, David expects Jonathan to act towards him with chesed love because of the covenant that they have entered into. Verse 8 again, as for you, show kindness. That word kindness is that word chesed, that chesed love. Show chesed love to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. So you see, David, fleeing for his life, finds his rest and safety in the chesed love of his covenant with Jonathan. And then actually, Jonathan aware that David would become king, asks for the same chesed love back. Verses 14 to 15. Jonathan says, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. You see, Jonathan knew that the common practice when a new king ascended the throne, a new king would always get rid of all potential threats. He'd purge his kingdom of anyone else who might have a claim on his throne. So actually, it would have been expected of David that upon his coming coronation, which Jonathan knew was going to happen, that he would then slaughter all Saul's descendants. That's what you did those days. Solidification by liquidation, someone has called it. So Jonathan, having previously given over to David his own trappings of state, recognizing that David is the anointed king, he pleads on the basis of covenant love that David should have mercy on him and his family. And what becomes clear is that this this covenant love, this hesed love, is a direct reflection of God's love. There in verse 14, remember, he says, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. That's that's the standard, that's that's the model. For this, this love, this kindness, this hesed devotion, is at the very heart of God's character. It is who he is. Let me just briefly take you back to Exodus 34. There, Moses had said to uh, the Lord, Lord, I really want you to explain to me more who you are. And we read this in verses 5 to 6. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. Here you see is God's self-revelation, his self-identification. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And the word for love there is that word chesed. Abounding in love and faithfulness. That is who God is. So little wonder we discover so many references of people appealing to God's 
love. For example, Psalm 13, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. Again, all these references to love are the chesed love. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Or Psalm 17, 7. Show me the wonders of your great love. Psalm 25, verses 6 to 7. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, there it is a second time. Remember me, for you, Lord, are good. It's who you are, Lord, and it's on that basis that I'm appealing to you. Nehemiah 1, verse 5. Then I, that's Nehemiah, said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, of hesed love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. It was on the very basis of God's character, God's nature, that all these people were appealing to God. I, I suppose, actually, that for some of us here, God's about the last person we'd think of running to in our troubles and struggles. We think he'd be angry or critical, that he'd turn us away, that he'd crush our longings. Whereas the story of David and Jonathan that we have before us reminds us that to run into the arms of an intensely loving, deeply committed God is the very best, indeed, it's the only satisfying thing that we can do. Just go back, actually, to God's self-description that we looked at there in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and it's this phrase, abounding in love and faithfulness. See, when you take that phrase and you translate it into the Greek language, that's the, the language that was used in the writing of the New Testament, abounding in love, abounding in hesed and faithfulness is translated as full of grace and truth. And, and, and who's described in that way? John 1.14, Ashley quoted to it to us earlier, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, abounding in chesed and faithfulness. You see, it's Jesus the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the lover of broken people. He's the one that we can run to. He's the one who welcomes us. He's the one who shows the love that our hearts ache for. And he's the one who will never, never, never fail or disappoint. He's the one who always remains true to his loving character. So we've seen the intense compassion of the covenant. But, but secondly, I want us to notice the intense cost of the covenant. The intense cost of the covenant. You see, covenants, generally speaking, were two-party agreements. And actually, you'll be used to covenants today. We, we, we use them in things like work contracts or service agreements or student loans. You know, if you do certain things, you'll get certain benefits. 
And actually, that was the same in the ancient world when people would cut a covenant with others to gain certain benefits. And, and they called it cutting a covenant because the practice was that the different parties who wanted to make an agreement with each other would take some animals, they would kill them, they would cut them in half, they would separate the two halves, and then together they would walk between them. And by that, they were indicating that if they failed to keep their word, they deserved the same fate as the animals. And God made a variety of covenants with his people. Probably the most famous of them was with Abraham, and it's explained back in Genesis 15. Let me read verses 9 to 10 to you. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. You see, it's very... This is about covenants. The nature of a covenant was that if you broke a covenant, you would expect to receive the penalty clauses of that covenant, which usually meant death. And actually, we see that with David and Jonathan in the story that we're looking at here in 1 Samuel 20. Again, go back to verse 8. He says, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. In other words, you see, David is saying, Look, if I've broken the covenant, then I should die. That's what should happen. And actually, Jonathan references this as well, a bit more obliquely, there in verses 14 to 15. He says, But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And actually, it's those references to cutting off that are there to remind us of the two-way covenant commitments. But actually, so what? What possible significance can this have for us today? You know, we may have learned something more about ancient covenant ceremonies, but that's hardly going to impact what we do at the school or at the college or at the workplace tomorrow. And in our church family, which is full of hurting people, a description of covenant rituals seems an unlikely place to go for drying those tears or for mending those anxious or broken hearts. But there's a vital lesson for us here to grasp. Let's go back to that covenant ceremony that we read about in Genesis 15 and continue the story. Let me read Genesis 15, verse 12, and then I'll read verse 17. It says, As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Verse 17, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Who walked between those severed animals? It was God. It was God alone. It wasn't God plus Abraham. It was just God. In other words, this 
covenant agreement was not dependent upon what Abraham did or didn't do. It was all down to God. He was the sole guarantor. There were no conditions. It was all flowing from God's incredible heart of grace. In fact, when we travel forwards into the New Testament, we discover that the Bible writers now use two different words to describe covenants or treaties. And that's because the, the Greek language had specific words that could distinguish between an agreement where there were two parties promising to help each other or just one person saying that they would do it all. The word that spoke of an agreement between two parties was the Greek word suntheke, and the word that was used to describe a covenant where only one person was responsible for its implementation was diatheke. And this word occurs 33 times in the New Testament. Let me just give you one instance of it, and you'll see what I mean. Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he, that is Jesus, took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. It's a covenant. A covenant. But what word is being used? It's the word diatheke. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, Jesus was saying, this is an agreement where I'm going to do something, and you're going to do something for me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do it all. And we need to grasp that what God requires of us all is that we trust him completely. That we rest on him. That we don't feel that we have to perform in certain ways to sort of trigger a response of love from him. And if you're here this evening as an unbeliever, you need to grasp that God doesn't need your help for you to be saved. This is his work for his glory alone. And he has done all that's necessary for you to be forgiven. Jesus came to suffer and die in the place of sinners like us. He took upon himself what you owe for breaking the covenant. You see, that's the intense cost of the covenant. You see, that's the cross. He is the one who takes the penalty for what we deserve. And the question is whether you will trust him, whether you will rest in him, whether you will delight in his glory, or whether you think you're still good enough and strong enough to save yourself. See, there's the intense compassion of the covenant. There's the intense cost of the covenant. Final, there's, finally, there's the intense commitment of the covenant, the intense commitment of the covenant. David's plan for Jonathan to see if he was still hated by uh, Jonathan's father Saul was to absent himself from the monthly staff meeting. For every new moon feast, Saul gathered his top leaders together, and David was one of them. On the first day of that feast, nothing was mentioned about David's absence. But let's pick up the story in verse 27. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? 
Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. You see, as a result of the loving commitment that he had made to David, Jonathan experienced extreme reactions. For example, firstly, his, his mother was publicly shamed. Saul calls, calls her a perverse and rebellious woman. Actually, that's a very polite translation. Saul is calling his own wife a slut in front of others. And Jonathan himself was shamed. Saul says, don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? And though in our culture, shame isn't too big a thing, in that culture, shame meant everything. And, and some of you maybe have come from shame cultures. You understand far better than some of us do what this shame is. I think the closest we get is that he was ghosted. He was cancelled. And he was attacked. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. This was shocking. This was irrational in the extreme. And his future was rubbished. And this is the core, actually, of all the reasons. This is Saul speaking to Jonathan. He says, as long as the son of Jesse, that is David, lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You see, here it is. Here's the big one. If David lives, you won't be king. Your future will be diminished. Your name won't be known. But Jonathan stood by his commitment, by the covenant, by his love. It cost. It was tough. It impacted his family and people that he cared about, but he kept his promise. He didn't give up. And, and could I say that there are some here this evening in this congregation for whom the cost of following Jesus is high. It is very high. It would actually be a lot easier and far more comfortable to step away from your commitment to Jesus Christ. You're being shunned by your family your reputation is in tatters, and they say your future is bleak. What a fool to follow Jesus. What 
a loser. And yet you hold on to your promise to Christ and you rest in his promise to you. You go to the covenant-keeping one who will never let you down. As the Christian writer commented, life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. So Jonathan needed to let David know what had taken place at that feast and that his life was still in danger. So he stuck to the plan, agreed with David, and went out to a field for shooting practice. And he took with him a young servant boy whose job was to pick up the arrows he fired, which was really trying to disguise Jonathan's true purpose in case there were any spying eyes. But once the lad had, had gone... And they were sure the coast was clear. David came out into the open to meet Jonathan. Let me read from verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Did you notice the most remarkable part of that conversation? Shalom. Go in peace. And David was able to go in peace because there was peace between the two of them. There was a loving covenant that superglued their hearts together. Because in that area, they were totally at rest. They didn't know what the future held for them. They didn't know what dangers lay ahead. They didn't know what physical attacks might come their way. But in the midst of it all, there was peace. And my friends, it's the same for the believer. We face pressures, we face trials of different sorts. We don't know what the future will hold, but we have peace. Because someone greater than David or Jonathan has pledged his love to us. You see, in the midst of the trials that you and I are going through at this moment, there is peace. For our hope is in Christ alone. Is in that covenant commitment that he has with us, in that wonderful, glorious chesed love that is lavished and poured out upon us. What is our hope? In life and death, we sang it this morning. Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this lovely, wonderful picture of covenant love. And we realize it is but a pale reflection of the incredible love that you have for your children. We thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, that he, the very Son of God, should come and take the covenant-breaking penalty for us. Thank you that he died there, taking our guilt, taking our shame, taking our sin. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace, you, you bring us into uh, that relationship with you, a, a relationship that is bound with your sure and certain promises of love. Father, thank you that we are more loved than we could ever possibly understand. And help us to delight in that. Father, I do particularly pray for my brothers and sisters here this evening who are in the midst of trials, who are wondering who they can trust, who are wondering where they should go. Sovereign God, take them to Jesus and remind them again of his loving covenant commitment to them. And Father, for those here who as yet do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, have mercy. And Lord, may they be able to rest in your work, to trust themselves to you with all their sin and for all their future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're actually going to sing the closing song this morning again. We're going to use it as our closing song now. It's the very theme that we want to declare together. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Let's stand. Let's sing.
now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life, in tomorrow, even unto death. And God's people said, Amen.